Welcome to Keep the Game Beautiful podcast. Each week, I highlight incredible people who are doing amazing things in soccer, the beautiful game. I'm Anna Turi, your host. Thank you for listening. This week with Haley Carter, we talk about a few difficult topics that many may find hard to discuss and learn from, but they're very valuable. We talk about gender violence, discrimination, and sexual assault. Like I said, all things that are hard to talk about, but they do need to be discussed and learned from. It's really important to always try and keep your players safe so they're able to enjoy the game and just have fun. So one thing that Haley said that really stood out to me is that she's the voice for the voiceless. It's important that she's there and she's able to stand up for people that are scared or ashamed or just not ready to stand up for themselves. She's a great advocate for many women in the game. I hope you enjoy the episode. Today's guest is Haley Carter. I was able to spend time with Haley in Baltimore this past January. She even asked me to do her introduction for her session. Haley Carter attended the U.S. Naval Academy and played soccer. Following her schooling, she became an officer in the U.S. Marine Corps. Haley continued to participate in soccer and earned the Marine Corps Air Station Cherry Point Athlete of the Year. Haley would help to coach the Afghanistan women's soccer team, as well as the Antigua and Barbuda. She played three years professionally for the Houston Dash. She was also the first woman to be honored with the FIFA Pro World's Players Union Mayor Award. Haley also serves as the chair of the Women's Advocacy Council at the United Soccer Coaches. So would you like to talk a little bit more about your background or anything I may have missed? No, I think you got it all. Thanks, Anna. On this podcast, I always start with the same three questions. So first, what does the beautiful game mean to you? The beautiful game to me, you know, I grew up playing the game. It was my identity for the longest time, and it's it's given me so much. So for me, um, you know, I think of it as so much, it is a game, right? But I think of it as so much more, you know, it's a vehicle and a pathway. Um, it, it's an, it creates opportunities, especially for women, uh, it teaches you skills and it is a means of empowering people. And it's also a means of bringing people together. You know, it, it can unite many cultures together around one, uh, around one sport. And so, you know, for me, that's the beautiful game. is just much larger than that. It's almost a movement, if you will, of, uh, you know, a means to empower and a means to connect. What are actions or things you do to keep the game beautiful? For me, it's really about growing the game. Um, it's about growing the game, giving more opportunities in communities to be able to, you know, get kids playing, get women playing, spreading the power of the game. Um, for me, you know, it's it's growing the game, and it's also um, it's also ensuring that opportunities and environments are safe for players. You know, I, I think. Uh, we see more and more uh, countries are creating opportunities for sport to grow, but aren't necessarily providing for player safety. And so for me, it's um, making sure that player safety is, is the number one priority. And I think this, that's becoming even more important right now and with us facing the COVID pandemic. And, um, you know, for me, keeping the game beautiful is about making sure players are taken care of, that we return to sport safely and, and that we're not putting money ahead of, ahead of players. How do you encourage others to keep the game beautiful? 
I think it's, you know, just by setting, setting an example, um, and, and doing the right things and, uh, and, and, and really genuinely just encouraging others to do the same, like grow the game and grow the game, but remember that it is a game. Uh, and again, like player safety, you know, players are king without players. We don't have a game. So making sure players have a safe place to play and that they're supported. And so really it's just about encouraging others to do the same. So let's start. When you became a Marine, how did it change you as a person and a player? So I would say I was attracted to the Marine Corps because of the values really uh, that are instilled in Marines. Uh, You know, I didn't, I think fundamentally at a foundational level as a person, I didn't change because I, those values already meant something to me. And so that's really what attracted me to the Marine Corps. Uh, you know, integrity and commitment and resilience and tenacity. And, you know, those things really stuck out to me about Marines. And so that's really what attracted me to it. So I wouldn't say necessarily that I changed as a person um, when I became a Marine, other than my identity shifted, obviously. You know, you, I spent my entire youth being uh, and growing up in my formative years being a soccer player and an athlete. And then, of course, when you become a Marine, and this is relevant because I continued to play soccer while I was in the Marine Corps for all armed forces, but when you're a Marine, your priority is to be a Marine. It's not to, to play soccer, right? So I would say my identity shifted a little bit. Um, that became my priority is, was being the best Marine officer that I could be. And um, soccer sort of took a back seat. But I will say as a player, it really gave me perspective, right? And And I think that that really manifested itself quite a bit when I played professionally for the dash that, you know, there was literally nothing that our fitness coach could do to me in 45 minutes as a professional player that came even close to the hardest thing I've ever done, um, having been a Marine. And so, um, you know, it just gave me the perspective, not only, you know, athletically and fitness wise and just endurance and, sort of mental toughness, if you will. Um, But also to remember that it's just a game. It is ultimately just a game, even when it's your livelihood or, or your, you know, your, how you're making your money, your income generator, it's, it's, you, you, there still has to be that love for the game, right? You have to remind yourself that it's a game. And if, if you're not having fun, you know, maybe you should stop doing it. So uh, for me, it was it was good to have that perspective because, I, you know, to me, it, it wasn't life or death, right? Going back to playing the game, you just have the perspective. It's not life or death. It should be fun. And you should go to training every day and you should work your tail off, but you should also remember that it's a game and you should have fun while you're doing it. So, uh, yeah. When did you know you wanted to play at Navy? I knew I wanted to play at Navy. I was relatively young. I, I was kind of a nerd um, growing up, uh, if that's hard to believe. And uh, I was watching a show with my mom on the Discovery Channel, and they were featuring each of the four service academies and the sort of journey. It was a multi-part miniseries, if you will, that, and it went through the various journeys of midshipmen and cadets and uh, and I watched that and I, I just was instantly drawn to the Naval Academy. And I told my mom then I, I really wanted to go there. And 
as I got into high school and was being recruited and whatnot, I was being recruited by other schools, but still I, I was drawn to go to the Naval Academy. And so I went to the camp. Uh, I did tours with Karen and Rob and I, I, I was just instantly drawn to it. I will say though, that I was terrified to apply to it. You know, I, obviously I was being recruited, but still there's a little bit of anxiety. And I think, and we've talked about this before, but I think that women in general tend to discredit themselves a little bit. And even at a young age, I was terrified of failing and terrified of being rejected. And so I hesitated to, to finalize my application because I was terrified I wouldn't get in, which was ridiculous, but nonetheless. Uh, and my mom grounded me to our dining room table and said, you're not getting up from the table until you finish your application for the Naval Academy. So I finished my application and I sent it in and, you know, lo and behold, I was, I was fortunate enough to be accepted, but you know, there's a story there, I think a little bit about when I was younger, you know, the fear of rejection was really a bit overwhelming. And as I've gotten older, that's something that I've learned to, to brush aside and, and care a lot less about, but uh, it was a very real thing for me then. But yeah, I decided from an early age that I wanted to go to the Naval Academy and uh, and I wanted to serve my country. And, you know, when I went on my official visit, it, I was even more sold. It was the uh, interesting story, actually. My original official visit was actually the weekend after 9-11. So 9-11 happened on a Tuesday, I think. And I was set to go to the Naval Academy for my official visit on Thursday. And of course, that didn't happen. Um, so I went the following spring uh, and it was Brigade Boxing Championships, which was a highlight actually all four years that I was at the Academy. Uh, and I was instantly sold. You know, I, I loved the facilities. I loved the people. I loved the culture. I loved um, the academic side, which was really hard, but all of it was just a, it was a major attraction for me. It was a really easy decision for me to go there. How do you know you wanted to continue playing for a long time and and several different teams? Uh, I knew that I wanted to continue playing because I loved, I loved the game. I still love the game. Uh, you know, it's, it's a part of who I am. It's, given me so so much in my life between the opportunity to go to college the opportunity to travel the world to meet new people to coach incredible women it's um you know I yeah it was it's it was a hard game I think to walk away as a player maybe not so much because I I was retiring at the professional level but um you know it was given to me of course that I would I would go into coaching because I want to stay around the game as much as I can whether it's you know, having business related conversations or coaching or even being the public announcer and the, and the, you know, for the dash and BBVA stadium, it's, I just, you know, want to be around the game for as long as I can and for as often as I can. So it was a pretty easy decision, really. It's like an addiction. <laughs> okay. It's hard to give up. <laughs> what was the transition like from playing to coaching? Uh, I would say I was rather fortunate really because I, I had been coaching goalkeepers throughout my career really. 
And in my first, following my first season of playing pro, I started working as a volunteer assistant at Houston Tillotson University, uh, which is in Austin. And then I moved to Houston to continue playing for the Houston Dash because I'd actually, I had been living in Houston my, or living in Austin. My parents were in Houston. I would commute. I would stay in Houston with my parents during the week for training and whatnot. Um, but every so often I'd have to drive back to Austin. And um, I made the decision to move to Houston. And then my second season, I started working as a volunteer assistant with under Tom Brown at, at San Houston State. And then in my final year, um, I transitioned into coaching with Afghanistan in 2016. And so that whole time I had been working with South Texas Youth Soccer, uh, Region 3, ODP, which is now South Region. Um, and and I just I just loved coaching. And, and I prefer, I'll just be honest with you, I prefer to coach higher level athletes, older athletes, at least, you know, high school age. Uh, in college age. And, and um, it was a pretty easy transition for me because I had been doing it. So it wasn't, I, I didn't just retire from playing and then go into coaching. I kind of transitioned gradually into it. And, you know, having played at the pro level and then transitioning into really, it's the international level, but you're talking like developing international level, right? Like it's, we're not talking the, the top 50, right? And so to be able to take what I had experienced at the pro game um, and what I experienced even collegiately and partner with Kelly Lindsay and what she had experienced both playing in the pro game and coaching in the pro game to create a professional environment for players, you know, in Afghanistan. And then also to bring that sort of perspective to Antigua as well has been relatively straightforward uh, and really rewarding, to be honest with you. Um, but I can say for some players, it's a difficult transition because many players can play, but they can't necessarily coach. It's not the same. And, and I think it's also can be a difficult transition because you really have to change your mindset and you have to appreciate how to engage players and how to manage team dynamics. And you're really thinking about those things. You know, when you're a player, you show up and you play and that's it. You do your job. When you're coaching, especially at the international level, you know, you're breaking down film, you're looking at data, you're, uh, you have meetings that will go on for many hours, you're thinking about training sessions, you're, you know, what kind of themes you want to put together. There's a lot that goes into it. And I think as even as a pro, and I can admit this, and obviously I can't speak for every pro, but I can tell you that for me as a pro, I would show up and do training, but I wouldn't think about all of the things that were going in behind the scenes to get everything going. You know, you just get up and, and that's intentionally. So, right. You want pros showing up and doing their job and doing their part and playing and focusing on that. Um, so it's not by accident that that happens, but um, it can be a real eye opener, I think um, for a lot of players that transition into coaching, particularly if you're coaching at collegiately or, or at a high level. What is it like to coach in other countries? Uh, fun. <laughs> Challenging. Um, you know, it's obviously you're dealing with various different cultures. And um, for me, it is very rewarding. It's very challenging. You're especially, you know, you're in Afghanistan and a little bit less so in Antigua. Antigua has its own set of challenges, but in Afghanistan, you know, you're dealing with parents and 
and families who aren't quite comfortable with their daughters playing sport yet or aren't quite comfortable with their daughters playing sport and being led by men because there's just this vulnerability. And of course, with the things that happened with Afghanistan, it was even before those things came to light, um, it was difficult to try and convince um, families to let their, their daughters come and play. Having an all women staff for the most part was very helpful in that, but that was certainly a challenge that we faced. And of course, you know, there's, players that are coming from Afghanistan that needed to wear tights and long sleeves and hijabs. Um, you know, there's, there's just things you have to think about uh, and you have to manage from a, a uniform and kit perspective. And then also, you know, and this is relevant with coronavirus and I've told this story to a few people recently that, you know, in Afghanistan, our players couldn't go to the gym and lift. Uh, they, they very infrequently, mostly hardly ever, never. They never really got access to it unless it was for a photo op. They never had access to the 11 v 11 pitch that's right outside the Federation. They usually were only given access to a 7 v 7 space or even a futsal court. And so, um, you know, when you take players from Kabul and you, you travel for a major tournament or an international friendly, they're about 20 minutes game fit. Uh, and it's not their fault. Um, they just are not given the opportunities or the space while they're in country. And, you know, it wasn't practical or feasible for Kelly Lindsay or myself or any of our staff to travel to Afghanistan to run that stuff. And so, and what we discovered was that, you know, the women just couldn't, they couldn't go to the gym. So we needed to create fitness workouts that they could do essentially in their bedrooms. And so we had John DeWitt, who was um, my sports scientist for the Houston Dash and brought him, we brought him on for Afghanistan because he's brilliant. Uh, he put together workouts that they could do that were uh, body weight based and a lot of CrossFit, so squats, burpees, um, a lot of high intensity interval type work that they could do in a small space to work on their fitness. And so, and that was all the time for them. So it's interesting to me to see um, the challenges that coaches and clubs are having engaging their players to work in an isolated environment, because the reality is our Afghan players were always having to work in an isolated environment um, from a fitness standpoint. And so, yeah, just each country presents its own unique challenges. Um, in Antigua, the thing that I have observed and the best person that you should, you should bring on the podcast to discuss this, of course, is Lisa Cole, the head coach and director of women's football there. I've been fortunate to, to go with her team and, and work with the goalkeepers there, both at Olympic qualifying and at that level, and also to run some grassroots clinics. And what I've discovered there is that um, unlike in the United States, where we sort of experience sports as a means of developing life skills, creating opportunities for youth, um, engaging them, you know, integrating it with school and, you know, making it sort of a, a part of life and, and, and who we are, I think, as Americans, that, that attitude hasn't really caught up uh, for like women's football in Antigua. They don't, you know, it's not necessarily seen as a means to um, to become empowered and to develop life skills and to become a better 
citizen and contributor and, and football is not really seen that way. You know, in Antigua, women, women work, you know, women and, and in many cases are the primary and, and top, you know, breadwinners for their families. And so sport is, it kind of gets in the way of that a little bit facing that dynamic and trying to change sort of the way society looks at women and girls participating in sport and the benefits that come from that, you know, of living a healthy lifestyle and being active and, and all of those things that as Americans, we really tend to value. And obviously I'm not saying that the American way is the right way, but if you're trying to grow the game, having that perspective and approach to the game is helpful, right? You know, because it's it's a way to engage more players and it's a way to engage interest in the sport. And I can tell you that um, Elisa Cole has done a phenomenal job doing that in Antigua and getting people excited about the sport and excited about the game. She just um, relaunched the women's league there. There hadn't been a women's league there since 2015. And right prior, obviously, to the the COVID shutdown, they had just relaunched in January. I think they were only maybe two matches away from completing their season. Uh, And and there were tons of fans that were coming out to the games. People were excited. There was lots of engagement on social media. So the the opportunities there are are growing. And, you know, I'm confident, I'm optimistic, really, that she's going to be able to keep that momentum coming out of, of coronavirus. And and figuring out what that new normal looks like. But um, yeah, so I think there's exciting times ahead, but to, to really to answer your question very succinctly is that each country presents its own challenges, but it can be so rewarding to work with people from other cultures and experience that and, and have fun with the game. You know, like I said, the game brings people together. How did you recruit people from other countries? I can't really speak to Antigua because there wasn't much of that that occurred before um, before Olympic trials. And like I said, Lisa would be the best person to talk about what that ever looks like. But for Afghanistan, Kelly, Lindsay, and I traveled to Europe and we uh, attended a tournament that was being held in Amsterdam that several of the Afghan women players were that were based in Europe had come together to compete in. And I went to a tournament, a youth tournament. It was more of an open women's tournament, but it was mostly youth players in the Bay Area, in San Francisco as well, to recruit players. And then we had a concerted effort posted via social media and other means of having women submit highlight videos. Uh, And we reviewed those. We had one player a young player named Yasna Mahmadi who came out of Sweden. She's an, she's an unbelievable athlete, great player. And we were able to find her through highlight videos. Instagram actually was how, was how we located her. And we invited them. We invited everyone really into like that first camp that was in San Francisco in 2016 and just to evaluate. And, and we had a camp and then we participated in a tournament out there as well. And so really it was a, you know, it's about sharing information, getting things out there on social media, us traveling as a staff to find where players were going back and, and having conversations with, you know, Afghan communities in Virginia and San Francisco and Sydney and, 
Australia, like all, all over, because that's where our players have come from. We had uh, Canadians, we had Americans, we had Australians all over Europe. And so generally half of our team would be um, Afghans who either they were refugees or their parents were refugees, uh, come from other parts of the world. And then the other half of the team would, would come from Afghanistan. And so I think the challenge is less recruiting, Anna, and it's more about creating a culture of togetherness. And I think we this challenge happens in lower-ranked international squads uh, simply because you just don't have the resources necessarily uh, to develop organically within the country. And I think ultimately that's everyone's dream, right, to be able to grow national teams within the borders of that nation. But the reality is at this point, um, if you're trying to field the best team of personnel who are eligible to represent that nation, um, it's not necessarily coming from inside your borders. And we see this even with the U S men's team, you know, there's, there's been, there's been some back and forth over that, um, which I won't get into, but it's, you know, it happens. And with our team specifically, Kelly, Kalita, and I really made an effort with everything that we did to integrate as much as possible. You know, when we went to SAS, the South Asia Football Federation Championships, we had shirts and jerseys and kits made for training that said together unbreakable. And that's really always been our mantra. If you look at back at our social media since the beginning, together unbreakable has been sort of our theme. And, uh, and it's really paid dividends, right? So even with rooming assignments, we would try and mix as much as possible. And groups, you know, when we did leadership councils, we tried to mix as much as possible. When we would do fitness accountability groups, we'd mix as much as possible. And so it was really important to us that, that the team appreciated no matter where in the world you were living, you were all Afghan. Uh, everybody spoke Dari and um, and it was the one language that really connected everyone. At one point we counted, there were like nine different languages that our team spoke. Um, but Dari being the consistent one. And so, you know, for us, the challenge was less recruiting and more about once you've done that recruiting, how do you integrate and create a successful culture and environment where there's a unity and, and sense of togetherness there. And so that, that really, I think is the, is the biggest challenge, right? You shared a little bit about some of the other cultures, and I know there's an ugly side too that you fought to hold accountable. So can you talk about that and what you witnessed in Afghanistan? Yeah, so so I would say, you know, the ugly side of the game for me in, in multiple capacities really boils down to the power dynamic that is unfortunately seemingly inherent in international football where you have a federation or a regional confederation of corruption and powerful men who possess a power over vulnerable players and vulnerable athletes uh, and you know, in, in our situation with Afghanistan, obviously, we saw that manifest itself through a series of sexual assaults and sexual abuse and incidents. And and it's not happening just there. It's happening everywhere. You know, recently, I think it was two weeks ago, 
Um, the Guardian did a story, you know, on an investigation of Haiti's uh, football president. And so it's something that's happening everywhere. It's not just happening in, in one particular region. It's, it's genuinely happening anywhere that there's this power dynamic that exists. And so, um, you know, for us with Afghanistan, the way we chose to fight it uh, really was to be, to be the voice that women in Afghanistan could not have. You know, from a safety standpoint, you know, if they had spoke out publicly about the things that had happened to them, that is a life or death decision, genuinely, not just for them, but for their families. Um, and so it was on us, it was on the players that are outside. And I have to say that their sacrifice, they, many of them have sacrificed their international playing career to support their teammates, some of whom they've never even met. Um, it, it really, we sort of talked about when we met and we were dealing with all of this about the concept of being the voice for the voiceless. And I think that's really important. That's a really important theme across the board for, I think, for women and players, and it's not just happening to women, it's happening to men as well, for people who are fighting these issues in the global game to think about being a voice for the voiceless. It's up to people like myself, like Kelly Lindsay, um, like the many organizations that helped us, whether it's Human Rights Watch, Center for Sports and Human Rights, Steve Pro, um, Amanda Vandervoort was very helpful, AFDP Global, Prince Ali out of Jordan and his organization. There are just many people who have supported this concept of being the voice for the voiceless, because the reality is it's very difficult to fight um, the ugly side of the game head on and directly. And the people that are impacted by it the most are oftentimes least capable of fighting it. And so it's on the rest of us, I think, to, to ensure that, you know, and it's like the first three questions you asked, right, about keeping the game beautiful. It's on, it's on all of us that have the means to communicate and to hold organizations accountable to doing the right thing to make sure that that happens. After these women started to come forward, did you see other changes in the country or in their community? Yeah, so after... Um, it was actually in incredible to watch after, after the news broke, uh, and women were coming forward and were publishing their stories through the media. Um, and we started pushing things on social media and we started really holding FIFA's feet to the fire as far as, um, addressing this and holding those responsible accountable, um, there was this like almost it was like a me Too Afghanistan movement. Um, and we saw that on social media. We saw cyclists and runners and swimmers and athletes and women in the government and their community, like not just athletes, but women who had experienced similar things starting to speak up. And women who were Afghan women who were supporting women victims starting to speak up. And so we, we saw this and it, it was almost a delayed. And mind you, I think we our, our players were coming out right on sort of a little bit of the tail end of the Me Too movement here in the U.S. And so it, it just sort of was this wave that spread to Afghanistan and within Afghanistan. So it was really empowering 
and I think encouraging to the players because they were terrified um, to come forward and rightfully so. But once they did that, it was clear that they weren't the only ones that had been experiencing this in Afghanistan. And um, and so you start to you started to see more and more women coming out of the woodworks and, and speaking up about this sort of dark and ugly side of things. And um, yeah, so it was incredible. It was incredible to watch. Is counseling and other help available to people who need help? Or is it something that people don't really openly talk about? Yeah, so um, so I, I, I will tell you this. So obviously we have gone out of our way um, and thankfully for organizations like CIFRO and even FIFA to some extent has been very good about helping our players and athletes who are victims to these horrific acts um, sort of transition and and. I don't want to say deal with those things, but, um, but be supported and be encouraged and, and pursue counseling should they want to pursue counseling. And they've, we've been very fortunate that, that these women have been supported the way that they have. Um, from my personal experience, I can tell you that listening to these women tell their stories over and over again and, um, you know, being up at three o'clock in the morning to Western Union cash or deal with hotel reservations or book flights to get women quickly from one place to another place. And um, it, it was very stressful, very, very stressful for, you know, two or three months. It, there were some really hard, hard times in there. And I remember um, in December when The Guardian published um the story of one of our athletes um, and what had happened to her, what the president, the former president of the Federation had done to her. Um, I just, I reading it in print again, I just, it was like, I can't even really put into the words how upset I was. I was angry and frustrated and, um, and it just brings it all back up again. And, um, and I remember that day I called my friend, Amanda Vandervoort and, um, and and I just like unloaded on her. I I just cried and cried on the phone to her. And um and you know we had had the conversation about secondary trauma and secondary stress and really what that looks like and and having to support these players and be, really be the strong um, sort of pillar for these women that they could rely on and that they that was consistent and unwavering and it was exhausting, right? And um. And Amanda and I had the conversation about, you know, talking to somebody and, and seeing a counselor. And so I made that decision, actually. Um, and I, I am pretty open about mental health and managing, you know, my transition out of the Marine Corps and seeing counselors when I was in the Marine Corps. I'm pretty open about that. But, you know, I didn't think of it for me that it came much easier than thinking I should see a counselor um, now over secondary stress. And um, and so I did, I, I did, and, and I am a huge proponent of it. I think it's important that we talk about these things um, out loud when we're experiencing them. And um, yeah, like obviously counseling is available. I can tell you from a reporting standpoint, if you're a player, or an athlete, or anyone really in the game, um, FIFA is reworking their reporting system um, and to develop their response mechanism, if you will, because reporting is one thing, but 
how they receive that report, who's notified, how they manage that, that, that process itself is, is being reviewed as a result of the things that have come out with Afghanistan. And so, um, yeah, I, I just, it, it, yes, counseling is available and I highly encourage it. How much do you think this happens in the world? I know you mentioned Haiti, but are there any others? I think it happens all over the place, um, to be honest. I think it happens anywhere. Like I said, I think it happens anywhere that there's a power dynamic. I mean, look at the United States and, and USA Gymnastics and, and that scandal, right? That's happening here right under our noses. There's a power dynamic there, right? You have a physician and he has a power dynamic over athletes and he's taking advantage of it. I think it happens... I think it happens everywhere, and I think it's on all of us to ensure that it's not happening to athletes, um, and it takes standing up and preventing that, and it, cause it's really hard for the athletes to do that, right, because, again, they're, they're on the lower part of that power dynamic, and so for them to know to speak up or to who to speak to or to not be ashamed, or those are really difficult, tough things for athletes to manage, for anyone to manage. Um, and so, you know, I think that it's fair to say that I think it's happening everywhere. I think it happens in any community, not necessarily just in sports, um, and not necessarily just in football, but, um, and so it's something I think we all have to be aware of and we have to look out for and be cognizant of. And, um, and I think from a coaching standpoint, you know, we really need to mitigate risks as well. Um, on our own behalf, right? So, you know, we're not having conversations with players alone. We're not, um, you know, that we're protecting ourselves as well um, from any sort of allegations like that, because I do think that they're prevalent. And I think that we also have to prevent, um, I think that we also have to prevent ourselves from being the subject of any sort of allegation. Um, and so it's, it's, yeah, with, I think that as prevalence, is increasing and then we're seeing more and more of these cases. I think it's becoming more and more important of coaches, not only to be looking out for your athletes, but also to be looking out for yourself and for your staff and making sure that um, you're never being, you're never putting yourself into a situation where your integrity and your, um, your actions are called into question. Right. I think there's two sides to that. And I just have to mention that as a coach, because I think it's important. What is one thing that fans of the game can do to help women in the game today? Continue to invest, continue to support, um, continue to, to, to fight for women's ability to play. And, you know, when the NWSL returns and the NWSL will return, make sure that you're getting to games, you know, make sure that you're watching, make sure that you're talking about it. Um, you know, I think that's really what it comes down to is women's sports, and not just football, but women's sports in general, I think are, are riding a wave of momentum. And despite the coronavirus and what that's doing, I think that that momentum will continue. And so it's a matter of just supporting and investing and, and getting tickets and being out there and talking about the game and engaging on it. So can you talk a little bit about what the ab advocacy group is? Yeah, so the Women Coaches Advocacy Group originated as the Women's Committee many years ago, and it was uh, it was led and founded by incredible legends within the game: uh, April Heinrich, Marty Cohn, 
um, Dr. Colleen Hacker. There's, you know, have been just incredible women that have created and, and, and led this, you know, Nancy Feldman, Becky Burley, and, and Lisa Cole, of course. And so really it started as a means of supporting women coaches and, and creating a pathways for women, both leadership in the game, leadership in United Soccer Coaches, which of course formerly was an FCAA. Uh, and now as we've sort of evolved and advocacy has become a main pillar of United Soccer Coaches, our mission is, you know, to recruit women coaches in the game, keep women coaches in the game, to celebrate excellence in the women's game, whether it's men that are coaching women or women coaches. You know, we've got, you know, Kim Wyatt, for instance, is, is totally kicking ass coaching in the men's game. Um, you know, making sure that we're celebrating women, the women's game and women in the game. Uh, and then also, you know, developing women coaches, what, trying to get more women, more opportunities for women to do grassroots courses, whether it's collegiate athletes and getting them involved or getting more women to attend higher level courses. And what does that look like for, for diplomas? And, uh, and so it's really, it's about recruiting women, developing women, giving them leadership opportunities, creating a pathway again for them to lead in the game or within the association itself, celebrating excellence when it's happening in the game, recognizing women who are doing incredible things. And then lastly, something that I've really been working on this year, and, and unfortunately coronavirus has really sort of taken a hit, given a hit to this, but helping women coaches network at a local level and empowering leaders, women leaders in their communities to get other women coaches together, whether it's for coffee with coaches or, you know, reading the game or hosting a grassroots course, something that enables women to connect together at that local level. Because the reality is United Soccer Coaches has one convention once a year, and it's a great opportunity to get to meet other coaches and network. But it's only, you know, five days out of the year. And so for me, the, the biggest objective right now for our advocacy group is helping women make those connections year round throughout the year. So when you have um, like the Wisconsin Women's Soccer Advisory Council, when they ran their symposium, that pulled a lot of women together. So how can we help women leaders in their communities do things like that and facilitate activities like that and just pulling women in, even if it's as simple as creating a Facebook page where they can go and in a safe space, communicate with, with each other about things that are happening to them or share best practices and, and really find a way to relate to each other. So, um, yeah, so that for me is the focus right now, but, you know, obviously we have those, those main sort of um, missions, if you will, right. Um, and, and what we're trying to target and do for women. So, yeah. How can people support and be a part of the advocacy group? So I think what's important for people to understand about the advocacy group, and, I, and I've stressed this with people that I've met both at the convention and, and who've expressed interest and reached out to me, is that the advocacy group is not, it's not a group in that, you know, we don't have like a, a secret like handshake and, and, you know, like there's, it's not like a click. You're not like just becoming part of a group. It's 
for me, you, if you're interested in joining, you have to be interested and willing to take an active role in advocacy and for your community. And so when people reach out to me about wanting to join, I usually have a conversation with them about what are they interested in? You know, are they interested in, we start talking about, you know, recognizing excellence in the game, or, you know, we have one task force, it's called Enhancing the Membership, who um, Christina Sorokin, she manages that task force. She's the task force captain for it. And, and that focuses on social media, recognize, recognizing women in blogs and our newsletter, uh, our coach of the month, uh, you know, so then we have coach education, right? So is your interest working in coach education and getting more women opportunities to, to receive coach education or to pursue coach education. So I try to have conversations with, with women um, and even men who want to participate in, in, you know, what are your strengths? What are your interests? And how can we sort of pair that with what the, the group is working on? And then the ball is really in, in their court, right? Um, to have conversations and, and make connections and, and play an active role. And of course, other times we'll have coaches who will reach out to leadership within the group who are experiencing some sort of issue, whether it's an employment issue or um, they need help with a resume or they need some connections made. And, and you know, when you express interest in the group and, and you reach out to us, that's going to happen. We're going to make those things happen for you. Or And if we can't help you, we're going to direct you to people that can help you. Um, but I just think it's an important theme um, that that people appreciate that the women's advocacy group is here for you, um, but also if you want to join and you've expressed interest, um, there also needs to be a willingness for you to participate and take to, take an active role in that. And whether it's in your local community or within the leadership group itself, um, it's important, right? That's an important aspect. I think that that's how we grow the association. That's how we grow the number of women coaches. So I think it's important, you know, that we it can't be a passive membership, right? It can't be a passive interest. It's, it has to be uh, active, if that makes sense. So we've made it to our last question. What do you okay. hope people remember about your impact to soccer and the world? Yeah, so um, I could care less really if people, you know, <laughs> remember my name or who I am or I, what I care about is that uh, that I leave this lasting legacy of the sort of theme of of leaving things better than you found them um, and and really sticking to your guns about making opportunities better and more prevalent for women to be able to play the game so for me I want to see Afghanistan women's football continue and I want to see that program grow and women there be empowered I want to see um, when more women coaches in the game and so for me what I what I hope will be remembered is that I won't necessarily be remembered but that I've I've created programs and legacies that will be sustained over time that's what matters most to me right I don't I, I don't necessarily care what people remember about me per se I just want to make sure that when I go, whenever that time is, that I've left, um, I have left the football world and opportunities better than they were. Throughout this conversation, I really learned why it is super important to protect our players. 
It's very important that everyone has fun during the game and they enjoy themselves. And that's why players need to be kept safe, because we don't want their joy for the game to be taken away from them. If you're going through something, there's many organizations. Like I said last week, there's safe sport that you can reach out to, or you can reach out to any other local organizations in your community. And if you're not going through something, it's important to be an advocate or just be a person that someone can talk to about anything. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I hope you learned a lot from it. And until I see you next week, remember to keep the game beautiful. <laughs>